there's so much opportunity in this space. You know, we're, we're basically replacing the whole internet. You know, we're replacing financial services broadly. Every vertical that you can imagine is sort of being replaced by a DeFi alternative right now from exchanges to lending facilities, insurance, art galleries, you know, websites. I think there's as much opportunity as there was, maybe even more opportunity than the World Wide Web. Hello and welcome to another episode of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the UK Startup Podcast, where I have real conversations with top entrepreneurs so you can take your business and life to the next level. Today, I'm talking to Jesse Powell, co-founder of Kraken. Kraken is one of the world's oldest and largest crypto exchanges, allowing people to do everything from buy Bitcoin to trade Dogecoin futures. Since 2011, Kraken has grown to over 1,800 employees whilst navigating the brave new world of government, crypto, regulations, and the rise of my own favorite, NFTs. Jesse has been in the crypto space for a long time and witnessed all sorts from the collapse of Mt. Gox to the first Bitcoin millionaires. But before all that, let's go back to the dot-com bubble and selling gold on World of Warcraft. I've kind of been like forced to be an entrepreneur since the beginning, my whole family was pretty much poor and um, got like very minimal allowance. You know, like if I lost a tooth, the tooth fairy gave me uh, 25 cents. It was not like an easy money kind of like situation. So I was always out in the neighborhood doing chores for cash, you know, washing cars, raking leaves, mowing lawns, that kind of stuff. You know, I did that like, you know, when I was a kid, I got a a real job when I was like 14 years old working as a clerk in a homeowners association's office, you know, but I would say like, I, I really started to meet like other more entrepreneurial, older people through playing magic, the gathering, you know, there were some real like hustlers of trading in the magic game. And, uh, you know, I learned to do this like arbitrage between card markets and different geographies. You know, I was constantly traveling to play in tournaments and stuff. And, um, I was living in, you know, a smaller town at the time. And I realized like when you would go into the bigger cities to do these tournaments, like the Bay Area, especially the card values would be like much higher than what you could buy them for in the smaller towns. So, you know, I would try to like trade for these cards that I knew were popular, you know, like at the tournament level in the bigger cities and, you know, sell them there. So I was doing this like arbitrage. And um, I also met some guys who were like older than me. They had a business basically like professionally selling cards online. I would say that was kind of like my first experience with like, like a real, someone really running a business, like meeting someone who was like a business owner. And I thought that was like really interesting. And, you know, I think that kind of like gave me the inspiration to like, feel like I could do that too. You know, like it didn't seem like it was that hard. Like these were just like ordinary guys that were like running businesses and you know, that was kind of like the first business that I really started where I'd say like I had I had other employees was like selling Magic the Gathering cards. I guess I was like 18 when I started this business. It was like a e-commerce business, I had one employee and uh, it was basically just for packing and shipping and managing inventory of cards. You know, that was like basically my start. And then, you know, I had like a bunch of other businesses. Yeah, that's kind of like my path into entrepreneurship. How do you think your childhood actually impacted your career then? I mean, it's impacted my, my whole life in many ways. Um, I had, you know, great parents. I've got three siblings. I'm the oldest child. What I saw in my parents was that, you know, neither had a college education when I was young. And I saw them both 
go through school, go through college, get degrees, get better jobs, you know, level up their careers, change their careers. I think that was like, you know, really inspirational. Just, just having like a demonstration of kind of like leveling up in your life in front of you. My parents also never really like forced the kids or pressured the kids into taking a particular career path. I didn't have any idea, you know, what I wanted to do. When I got to college, I was studying like philosophy and psychology. And, you know, I found out through speaking to my professors that this was like basically like a dead end. So, you know, I think it was good that my parents like didn't have like expectations really of like what we were going to do, which kind of gave me the freedom to like explore a lot and, you know, try different things out, like, like starting a company, you know, or, or not worrying about them being like offended or upset that I dropped out of school to, to continue to run my company. And also, you know, they've just been super supportive. So knowing that you have that safety net there, like worst case scenario, you know, I'm like, risk it all, lose everything. You know, it's not like sleeping on the streets. It's like, oh, I get to go live in my parents' basement, you know, for for a few months while I figure things out. I think that's like a huge thing too for entrepreneurs is to have that safety net to be able to risk everything. And I think, you know, the younger you are, I think the more you should be risking. So I guess, you know, I'd love love to know, so how did you go from like Magic the Gathering then into crypto? Were there jobs in between? Was there a path? Like, take us there. After Magic, after the Magic business, I joined a friend's company. You know, it was basically just him at the time. Um, This was like around the year 2000 when the dot-com bubble was bursting in Silicon Valley. And uh, he had a business. He had the idea to sell, basically go to these auctions. So this was like early days of, of eBay and PayPal as well. And it was like an exciting time to be selling things online. You know, there wasn't like a ton of competition and it was a good market. He basically like found that, you know, there were all these liquidations of all of these tech companies that had just blown up in Silicon Valley. Uh, so we would go to these, buy stuff. You could buy like pallets of like hard drives or pallets of laptops at like rock bottom prices. And sometimes things wouldn't be working. Like you would get a pallet of like 50 laptops, you know, and like a couple wouldn't be working, but you could like cannibalize, you know, one to like get parts for like five others and stuff. So I was working with him on that and, and that was all like done through eBay. So I'd say like, that was like another good business where like I, you know, I was working for someone else this time and, um, learned about, you know, selling things on eBay, about marketing, about PayPal and chargebacks and all of this stuff. And then in 2001, I guess before that, slightly before that, I had a a job working as a tech support agent over the phone uh, for an internet service provider. Basically, you were allowed to use your computer for anything you wanted, like pretty much while you were on the phone doing tech support. And sometimes you kind of needed it to like walk yourself through a flow of like, okay, how does the user get to like these particular settings or something. But most of the time, like after you'd been there for a little bit, you'd pretty much had memorized where everything was at and how to get everywhere. So you didn't really need your computer during a call. And most of the guys there were just playing video games the whole time that they were working. This is also kind of like a a small startup kind of uh, internet service provider. And a lot of the guys, they were playing this game called Ultima Online, which was like pretty much like the first major online game to have this like real money component to it, this like really rich item system in in game economy. And you could get these castles that were like selling for thousands of dollars and stuff. So I was like intrigued by that. And I was watching these guys play this game like all day long. 
so that kind of gave me the idea. Like I thought maybe I'll try to do this, you know, like maybe it'll be an opportunity to do this later. And then in 2001, you know, I got the idea to do it with this game Diablo 2. You know, I discovered that basically it was the same situation. Like there were these virtual items, there was an economy, there were people were selling stuff on eBay. Back then, in the early days of Diablo, you could make like $25 an hour just playing the game as like a normal person. So that was like immediately pretty nice, you know, like I like playing the game anyway and I was making $25 an hour doing it. So it's like, okay, wow, there's like some opportunity here. And then I started, rather than just playing and killing monsters to find items, I started doing arbitrage. I realized that there was a disconnect between the eBay price of stuff and, and the in-game price of stuff. So you could trade what was effectively like the, the in-game gold, like $5 worth of gold for like an item that you could sell for $30 on eBay. So I just started doing this trade, like basically buy $5 worth of gold, get an item, sell it on eBay for 30, you know, and then like basically like 6x my money, like every time I did that. Uh, so built this website for Diablo 2. Actually had a lot of help from my mom, who's like a web developer. Basically, I could have other people with items to sell, sort of like the way that Amazon works today. It was like anyone could kind of like post their items for sale. And um, that was the way it worked. But this turned out to be like a massive nightmare because everyone, there wasn't really like a enforceable standard of like delivery times or like customer service or anything like that. And what we found is that when people wanted to buy virtual items, like they wanted to get those items right away, not like two days later. So that was like a bit of a headache. And then I met this guy in the game who had figured out an exploit to be able to just like create any item. You could give him an item and then like he'd be able to copy it like as many times as he wanted. That experience was so much better that I basically decided to just like kick off the other sellers off the site and then like just provide all of the inventory, you know, directly through the deal with this guy who had this exploit. That went really well and um, ended up expanding into like, you know, 20 different games. It's still a pretty good business today. But, you know, that was sort of like the prequel to cryptocurrency, I guess, where, you know, it was basically a virtual currency business um, for video games. Yeah, this is all like, you know, kind of, I think, priming me for cryptocurrency. You know, I like understood the value of it. And Bitcoin specifically, when I read about it, you know, I thought it was like interesting. Like I just first saw it as like, oh, is this like another World of Warcraft goal that we can sell on the website, you know, just alongside like 20 other virtual currencies. Then I started getting into it more deeply and found out that like this was something that could like totally change the world. You know, it didn't have a centralized middleman, which had always been the problem for previous attempts at this, you know, like e-gold, for example. There was always some regulatory problem. But Bitcoin immediately solved problems for our business that we were having with PayPal and, um, and card processing. Those were like chargebacks, you know, which were, were rampant in digital commerce where you didn't have any kind of proof of delivery or real way of like identifying your customer. The transaction fees at the time on Bitcoin were extremely low, like basically zero. It had the potential to solve like a bunch of problems for us that we were having with having a global customer base having suppliers of items all over the world. You know, this wasn't just another currency like World of Warcraft gold, you know, and I thought like maybe I want to, you know, dedicate a significant amount of, of time to this and try to get Bitcoin more widely adopted in the world. Uh, we were doing mining and uh, one time we had like 5% of the total Bitcoin network in terms of hash power. 
you know, I was trying to trade with people for virtual goods for Bitcoin. Yeah, I was trying to get the, the gaming community more involved with it, but, uh, you know, it didn't have a lot of uptake. You know, I, I guess I should have thought of, you know, NFTs 10 years ago. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You know, you seem like the perfect person to be leading the whole NFT craze in general, because obviously simultaneously to this, you're also opening an art gallery, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't be more perfect for the NFT craze. You've got gaming, crypto and art in your DNA. Um, so talk to us a little bit about Verge Gallery and Studio Project. This is in Sacramento, California. I was there at the time. Um, the virtual goods business uh, was doing really well. I was kind of like, it was almost like on, on autopilot, you know, it didn't require my full-time attention by 2007. I was kind of, I guess, like getting a little bored of like sitting in front of the computer all day and just thinking like, you know, what else could I do that would be interesting? And, um, I had some friends who were artists who were basically like, didn't have a great place to work. You know, their whole kitchens were like taken over by, you know, their, their artwork. And, you know, that was like their studio and, you know, I thought like, well, I've got like a bunch of money, don't really know what to do with it. You know, maybe it'd be cool to, to do something like for artists. And, um, I happened to drive by this giant warehouse in the city and, uh, I thought, wow, like it would be cool. You know, I knew of like Andy Warhol's like factory and, you know, some other like artist co-ops. And I thought like, it would be really cool to, um, get this warehouse and then like put a bunch of artist studios in here and like see what happens. So I did that rented the warehouse and uh, actually had a hard time convincing artists to come take studios there uh, because they thought it was very suspicious. You know, like, 
why would somebody just be giving away free studio space? And uh, fortunately I had like one, there was like one really well-known artist in Sacramento who was like just across the street from this warehouse um, who came over and then like checked it out and then vouched for the project, you know, which I think got more people interested. We built out like 20 studios in that building and um, an art gallery. We basically only, only accepted artists. So because the spaces were free, at first, we had a pretty high bar for who we would accept. You know, we just wanted like career artists. It wasn't meant to just be like a studio that you use, you know, like once a month, you know, to play around. It was like, you kind of had to be like a full-time artist. However, most full-time artists are actually, uh, they actually have some other kind of job, you know, to pay the bills. Um, art doesn't generally pay very much. You know, most artists I think are, are just pretty much broke. You know, that was all just like a super, Super interesting project, and I learned a lot from it. But when our lease was up, um, I basically said to the community, like, look, like, I think we need a bigger space than this. And also, I think it would be great. You know, this is not like, unfortunately, in Sacramento, um, there wasn't like a major market for like fine art, you know. So a bunch of the the fans of the project like stepped up and, um, you know, lots of lots of great prominent folks in the community to to form a board and to, to basically like operate this as a nonprofit in a new, we, we found a new space. It was like 20,000 square feet. And so we rebuilt there. Now it has like 40 something studios, there are two art galleries in it, a classroom. It's a, it's a pretty awesome project. If you're ever in Sacramento, California, I highly recommend checking it out. That's awesome. And I mean, we'll get on to, we'll get on to NFTs because it would be a shame in this conversation not to, I've, I've had a look through uh, your Twitter feed. So I wanted to check before before bringing it up that you were definitely a fan and clearly you are. Obviously, we're here to just hear your journey in, in building a major player in the space. So why did you start Kraken? How fucking hard was it to get that idea off the ground? How long did certain bits take? Did you raise money? Did you need to? How many times did you almost fail? Uh, yeah, take it away. How did it all start? So back in early 2011, you know, I was just kind of dabbling in Bitcoin, trading, mining, but it was like the the hack of Mt. Gox in June of 2011 that kind of like really, that whole incident got me thinking about starting an exchange. The short story of that is, you know, a friend of mine uh, from the Magic the Gathering days, Roger Veer, happened to live like a few blocks away from the Mt. Gox office in Tokyo. At the time they got hacked, he was also deep into crypto. Went over there to see what was going on, you know, discovered it was like two men operating this business and, and one guy had just started the day before. So they needed like a lot of help. So Roger calls me up to see if I can like come out there to help them kind of get back on their feet. And um, I do that. I'm on the next flight to Tokyo. I spend about a week and a half out there helping them kind of recover. I mean, basically like hiring more people. Um, I wrote the press release for the, the incident, um, basically just trying to take all the work away from Mark so he could get the website back online. But I came away from that experience thinking like, this can't be the only crypto exchange. And also if crypto is going to go mainstream, it needs like a real serious player, you know, someone who's going to be like rock solid, work with regulators, work with law enforcement, explain cryptocurrency to banks, you know, to build that bridge from the legacy system to the new world of crypto, you know, I pitched the idea to my co-founder who I'd also been working with at the virtual goods business. He was our, our CTO there as well. You know, he's like basically like the most brilliant, like technical person I've ever met. 
and um, he was down for the idea. You know, he'd been like writing bots for for trading, and he was obviously he understood the the virtual currency industry. He was into Bitcoin himself. He seemed kind of like the perfect person. He's also like the best hacker you know that I've ever met. He seemed like the perfect guy to start this business with. And I mean, after seeing what happened to Mt. Gox, the hacks, and understanding kind of like the threat level that crypto companies are going to have. I don't think I would have done it if I didn't have someone like that who I just completely trusted. I'm not capable like at that level of like protecting everyone's Bitcoins, you know, like I, I wouldn't try to do this myself with someone who I didn't like fully trust. So we got to work on it. I mean, it took about a year, I think of like full, you know, development to actually get something to a point where we felt like we could launch it to the public. In that time though, the regulation was was developing and actually just before we launched, the United States uh, regulator FinCEN came out with some guidance that basically said that cryptocurrency was going to be treated like money as far as they were concerned. And anything you had to do to like process money or payments or take custody of money um, would be applicable to Bitcoin. So that threw a massive wrench into our plans. You know, we were just going to launch this just like it was another World of Warcraft gold which would not have required any kind of licenses or anything like that. And at the time, Mt. Gox didn't have any licenses or anything either. That was a setback. We decided to set back the launch by about another three months while we built out all of this KYC stuff, like the, the identification process, user verification, anti-money laundering controls, all of this stuff, which was like, it's a massive headache, headache for us to build and maintain. And obviously like a, a huge headache for customers who want to sign up in a frictionless way. The team was like three or four people at the time. And uh, we, we were basically bootstrapped. I mean, we, we were using money that we had just that we'd made from the, the previous business. So we hadn't raised any capital. It wasn't until early 2014 that we actually raised money. And, you know, we were actually doing okay. The industry was so small back then, you know, there the trading volumes, I mean, the trading volumes in terms of Bitcoin were insane. You know, it'd be like hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin trading hands a day. But, you know, the the value of that notional value, you know, it was like $2 a coin. So it didn't really like mean a whole lot. So we weren't making tons of money. You know, we were barely making any money. Uh, so I think we were still losing money at the time. But it was really, you know, some regulatory stuff that caused us to want to raise more money. What did you raise and, and how did you do it? So can you take us like a, a snapshot, I guess, through your different funding rounds and if it was hard even at the time, because now obviously, you know, and that's the point about being visionary and early in a space, right, is trying to convince people of the future versus now where that conversation is like this off every day because Bitcoin's very much arrived. You would think so. I mean, when, when you're in the bubble, like it feels like everyone, of course, understands everything about Bitcoin, but... Um, we still talk to VCs today who are still trying to like figure out what they think about it. You know, like they're, they're not fully bought in on cryptocurrency and they know that Bitcoin's a thing, but they don't understand why this space is going to exist, you know, 10 years from now. Why are people going to continue to care about it? What's, who's going to be the winner? Like they, they have all sorts of questions, but it's almost impossible to, to teach someone this stuff, you know, especially in, in like the time frame you want to do a, a financing, you know. So if they haven't already developed a thesis, it, it's pretty much not worth your time to even talk to them. You know, they kind of have to be like already made up their mind that they want to invest in crypto companies. Uh, so we wasted a lot of time educating people. I mean, there just weren't a lot of investors to go around back then. 
if I could do one thing differently, we, we didn't need the money for a long time. And it was only really when like we thought we had to spend a lot on getting licenses and regulatory um, issues that we, we felt like we, we needed to raise more money. And we ended up burning a ton of money on lawyers who mostly just told us like it's a gray area and we don't really know and we're not really willing to give you like a, you know, a solid like answer on something. So it, it turned out to like not be super helpful, um, most of the lawyers. But if I could go back again, I, what I would do is um, even if I didn't need the money, I would go through one of the the major like Silicon Valley accelerators. Like I would apply for Y Combinator and I would I would try to do it like and I would give them their piece of the business, even though, you know, I didn't need the money or, or even if I didn't need the education, I would do it for the network because, you know, it's basically like um, your entrance fee into this like elite club and it's a stamp of approval and um, there are investors out there who will just invest in anything that comes through you know like one of these accelerators like a, a Y Combinator especially if I were going to tell any any new entrepreneur like who's thinking about raising money or starting a company I would say like do whatever you can to get into like you know the most elite incubator or accelerator and then take money from people even at worse terms maybe than, than you think you deserve for the competitive block, you know, so there, and for the network, you know, there's, there's definitely value there for great investors. There's a lot of value there beyond just like the money, you know, the money is probably like the least valuable thing they can give you. You want like the network, the stamp of approval, you know, the ability to help you hire. It's a lot harder, I think, to pull people away who, who have a lot of opportunities versus being a startup who has, you know, the stamp of, of Mark Andreessen, you know, who said like, I think this is like the future. There are a lot of different, a lot of different things that, you know, I see in competitors that I'm like, um, you know, like, I wish I could do it that way, or I wish I would have done it that way. You know, one thing we deal with as a regulated business is, you know, once you get to a certain size, you come under like a lot of additional scrutiny. Regulators start to feel like they have to pay attention to you. You know, you have like millions and millions of customers. So they might actually be hearing when, when people have a complaint or something, you know, like let's say your website goes down for like five minutes, you know, it's not just like 50 people that noticed, it might be like 10 million people that noticed, you know, and then that's more likely to generate some kind of like inquiries with the regulator or something like that. I think your ability to fly under the radar is greatly diminished, you know, and it becomes more about like getting permission from the regulator to do something before you do it or, needing to follow the law much more closely because you're just much more scrutinized. And um, you can see that some more recently started crypto companies, you know, they, they may have not gotten to the scale yet where they're getting the heat from the regulators and they're just playing it like very fast and loose, you know, like maybe not onboarding users without collecting identity information, you know, for example, which is awesome for the user experience. You know, that's a great way to like quickly sign up a lot of people but there's some point where like you can't do that anymore. You know, the regulator will come knocking and say, hey, like, what have you been doing for the last five years? You know, here's like a billion dollars in fines or like you know, people going to jail or, or whatever. So, you know, it's gotten me to kind of see this more broadly as a problem as well, just in terms of like enforcement of crime or just like enforcement of the law generally is very selective. You know, Coinbase and Kraken both um, removed their margin programs recently for United States users. But despite that, we have competitors all over the world that are still offering a margin product to United States uh, residents. So, like, how is that possible? It's possible because the regulator just doesn't have the ability to to actually enforce these rules 
globally against everybody, you know? And so what they're doing is looking at like, where's the low hanging fruit? You know, we're, we're, we're the easiest targets to enforce against. And unfortunately, if you're like a, a good actor in the United States, you're just easy to come after. You can see like where this goes, you know, and where it goes is this like oligopoly um, where businesses, and this has happened in banking, you know, start asking for additional regulation or see it as a way to, to have a moat. So what are some of the things that you see like on the horizon that do still get you out of bed? Because you've been, you've been there for a decade now building a company, right? So to think about things in terms of decades, what is the exciting stuff that you can see in Kraken's future that like keeps you motivated to be there for the next decade? I think NFTs are going to be a much bigger thing. I think you'll see the tokenization of basically everything. You know, we're already starting to see like tokenized securities so stocks becoming tokenized. Obviously, art is becoming tokenized. There's some early stage projects for tokenizing virtual goods inside of games, which, you know, I think the metaverse and gaming is going to be massive. I think pretty much everything is going to be tokenized in some form, you know, either as like a certificate of ownership, you know, which could be sharded into many pieces and sold, you know, as, as tokens. I think DAOs are really interesting, these uh, community governance Yes, that's a distributed autonomous organization for those that don't know and really worth uh, checking out. They're absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's basically a company without being a company that has the members have voting authority over like how the the funds in the pool are spent and and no one person can spend it. You have to have a vote to spend the the money. You know, that is fascinating. There's several um, NFT collector DAOs right now where the community votes on like what they're going to buy. You know, in NFTs, this concept of um, of NFTs has, has gone way back to Bitcoin, you know, to like something called colored coins. You know, this was imagined in the early days of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what took us so long to get here, you know, what really like set everyone off. But it does seem like, you know, we're, we're now like in truly in the early stages of mainstream adoption. And a lot of people are, are becoming aware of crypto because of NFTs now. And I think it's also amazing to see artists come into the space and get rewarded, you know, to be able to sell their art digitally. And, you know, normally it's very difficult to sell art as an artist. Um, and I think if you're in the space now, you know, you have this, this venue, this like global art gallery, basically, where you can, you can get exposure to extremely wealthy collectors who want to flex on Twitter and, you know, post their, their latest purchases or their new avatar or whatever. There's just like a lot of money floating out there. Thanks to, you know, the amazing appreciation of, you know, people got into Bitcoin or ether or Solana early, you know, just sitting on mountains of cash. And like, they're probably just nerds sitting at home all day and don't know what else to do with their money, but like buy NFTs. (laughs) It's very convenient, you know. We're just, we're still very early, but, you know, I think everything's about to change. I think the next 10 years are going to be like, we're not going to recognize the world that comes before, you know, just like, you know, the internet, I I think it was, you know, I think the internet was also like a 20 year story, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but now everyone's got smartphones. Yeah, and people refer to the internet really as web two now, and this is all web three. Yep, exactly. So, you know, I think in in 10 years, we're all going to be, um, you know, using decentralized apps. There'll be a decentralized version of Facebook. We will have a, a completely new system. What what scares you the most then about the crypto landscape and where it's evolving at the moment? Like what are what are some of the biggest risks you see both for Kraken and for the industry? 
I mean, there's, there's so much opportunity in this space. You know, we're, we're basically uh, replacing the whole internet. You know, we're replacing financial services broadly. Every vertical that you can imagine is sort of being replaced by a DeFi alternative right now from exchanges to lending facilities, insurance, art galleries, you know, websites, uh, file storage, everything is being replaced. So, I mean, it's just like, I think there's as much opportunity as there was, maybe even more more opportunity than the World Wide Web. You know, I mean, we're, we're basically going to take everything that existed in the legacy system and put it online. And now we're taking everything that's online, we're putting it on the blockchain. And it's going to be accessible for people all over the world without borders, without permissions, um, without middlemen, with full transparency, with all of the data available to everyone all the time, 24-7, 365. You know, there's just so much to be built. The whole industry right now is just starved of, of developers and, and human bodies and, you know, brains to, to put on all these problems. So, you know, I would say like anyone who's like, you know, in, in college now thinking about what they want to do, I mean, this is like a, a space that's still early and there's still going to be a tremendous amount of growth. You know, I think everyone trying to, to understand crypto a little bit right now is just going to pay dividends in the future. And I think any time spent working at any cryptocurrency company right now, it was just going to be uh, more and more valuable later. I'm mostly excited about removing middlemen from things where that historically has been expensive or where there have been high fees because of a lack of transparency. It's going to totally change the whole world. I mean, a lot of middlemen are going to be out of jobs, you know, and I think that's where you see this pressure coming in from the legacy banking system. And these guys, you know, who are, you know, these big banks have paid our treasury secretary Yellen, you know, it was like something like $7 million in the last year or something for like speaking engagements. You know, they've got massive lobbying arms. They're clearly worried about what this new paradigm means for their legacy business and for their place as a middleman taking fees, you know, opaquely, you know, that's kind of like the, the state of the world, uh, the state of regulation and, and of the legislature is that we've got a lot of, um, old people who, who are not tech savvy. Um, we've got a lot of ancient laws that even predate the internet. You know, some of these laws about securities are 80 plus years old. You know, they have not imagined the internet. What they talk about in in the regulations are things like farmland and orange groves and a few people, you know, splitting up the the proceeds of like, you know, a farm, stuff like that. You know, there's there's not this imagination about like what would happen if there were an internet or or you know, even beyond that, what would happen, you know, in a in a world of DeFi. And the regulations often presume things about the physical world, you know, that they presume like, okay, there's, there's going to be a middleman here and then we'll need to protect people against that, that evil middleman. There's not going to be any data available. So we need to protect people, you know, make sure they get this information or, you know, there's, there are all of these, all of these things in the law that they're trying to, to adapt to cryptocurrency. But, you know, the law is just, if we look at it from a consumer perspective, like it's just not necessary with cryptocurrency because the data is all there. Everyone can see the blockchain. You know, there, there are millions of free tools for, for looking at data on the blockchain. Everything's fully transparent. There's not like a way for somebody to hide something that happened on the blockchain. These DeFi protocols offer like fully atomic swaps where like, you know, something either happens or it doesn't. There's not this like middle layer where like something could go wrong and the transaction only like partially reverts or something like that. 
So all of these presumptions that the law made, you know, 80 years ago, just like don't apply here, you know? So I think that's kind of where we are right now. And um, we're going to have to really lobby the legislature to, to change the law and get us some fresh laws that make it, it clear that, you know, cryptocurrency creates a lot of a lot of benefits for the consumer, and it's a, it's just a new paradigm, you know, that we can't make assumptions about old problems that like don't exist anymore, and and make reasonable law that you know allows the consumer to to benefit from it versus prohibiting them from engaging with it to the benefit of the legacy institution. Yeah, totally. I feel you. Um, I guess you've been on a big long journey with with Kraken over the last ten years, and just before you go, I'd love you to share what was your worst day um, or worst moment, and how did you react? Like, how did you go through it? How did you get through it? Um, just reflecting on it, I'd say there were like two pretty bad times. One was um, there was a time when we were about thirty people that we had to lay off half the company. Basically, this was like the bear market of late 2014, early 2015, I think, where the industry was just in a slump. You know, we were having a hard time raising more money. You know, we things were very uncertain. You know, it seemed like this was was the only way out. I mean, basically to slash our budget, you know, by by 50 percent. And um, uh, so that was tough. But, you know, we, we obviously bounced back f- from that. Um you know, I think people were were understanding. Um, some people felt like, you know, I guess this is like another lesson. Maybe I would I would take away as an entrepreneur is like I think sometimes um, not everybody in the company is like ready for like you know full hardcore like transparency. Uh, I think you have to be prepared if you tell people, hey, we've only got six months of runway left. A lot of people might start freaking out. You know, even if you as the the founder CEO, even if you're confident you can raise more money in that time or you, you know, your investors have already told you that, you know, they'll give you a bridge or, or whatever. If you tell people like, Hey, we have like a finite amount of money in the bank. Some people will start freaking out, you know? And, and, um, at that time, some people found out that, yeah, we had about six months of runway left at the current like burn rate. People started freaking out, you know, and saying things like you're gambling with our rent money. And, um, you know, this is like, I, uh, yeah, I can't work in a place. It doesn't have like job security and, um, you know, I was like, well, like you signed up to work at like, you know, a 15 person startup or something like, you know, what did you think this was going to be? Like, you know, like a guaranteed government job with a pension. But so I think that's interesting, like, you know, how people kind of like handle that information. And since then, I've, I've definitely been more careful about, I guess, giving too much transparency, like without context. You know, I think if, if you tell your team something like, hey, we've got six months of runway left, I think it, in the same breath, you kind of have to say like, why that is not a problem and why they should not worry about it. You know, if, if you just give them that one piece of information, like, you know, they could freak out and, and run with it. So the layoff day was, was pretty tough. I'd say like the second day was, there was a time when, when we went down for, um, for about 48 hours. That was extremely rough. I mean, basically there was a technical problem and, um, we tried the fix and the fix didn't work. I mean, this was like before we had like, like very robust controls and monitoring around like all of the system and and logging of everything. And, um, you know, there were just like some missing pieces to like figuring this problem out more quickly, but basically we tried the fix and the fix didn't work and the fix of the fix didn't work. And then, you know, we were kind of like going down the line of like things that could be the problem, you know, down to like checking network cables and stuff like that. 
you know, that was just like a, a terrible time because, you know, all, all of our, obviously Bitcoin's trading 24 seven, 365 and all of our customers are like, Hey, what the hell, you know, is going on? I mean, it is from a, a brand perspective, um, a reputation perspective, you know, it was just absolutely terrible. That was probably, you know, that was probably actually even worse than, than doing the layoff. You know, it was just like letting all of our customers down for that amount of time, not being able to get back online more quickly. We took that as a, obviously a ma- major lesson that we needed to, to dramatically upgrade things. Yeah, that's tough. You know, never want to let the customer down. Yeah, and these moments at the time of happening, right, are absolutely shocking. But, you know, when you're on a journey, they're bound to happen. And now you sort of reflect and uh, distant, uh, distant past memory on the way to your success. Yeah, I mean, it's actually like, um, I mean, for, for crypto companies, I don't think people often appreciate how difficult it actually is to try to run something 24-7, 365, like with, with zero downtime, like, you know, forever. Even the traditional stock exchanges, those guys are operating like nine to five Monday through Friday, uh, you know, and then they have the whole weekend and, you know, the evenings to do their maintenance. Uh, it's, it's a huge technical challenge, I think, for the crypto exchanges to maintain their infrastructure and, you know, to keep operating at, at the level of availability that they are. Dude, I've taken up loads more of your time. It's been awesome to chat. Thank you so much for uh, all your insights. And where can people find you on social, Jesse? People can find me. I'm at JustPow on Twitter and, and Reddit. Um, at J-E-S-P-O-W. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. That's your best bet. Like when we talk about being ahead of the competition, if you have a clarity of vision that you stay consistent with and you you have to deviate some, but you keep those deviations minimal and you understand why you're doing them and you keep them sort of self-limited, that's your best chance. It's a race. Hopefully it's not like the tortoise and the hare. You want to be both the hare and the tortoise. Out in front and steadfast. (laughs) That was Evan Goldberg, the founder and CEO of NetSuite. Find out how Evan has kept going for 20 years, leading a massive company worth billions of dollars, and what Evan learned from working with Oracle's legendary founder, Larry Ellison, next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.